0: Caught up with ESPN play-by-play broadcaster Boog Shiambi right before the show. Talked a lot of baseball with him. Let's do it. So, Boog, how's the shutdown been for you? Uh, how are you spending time in, in isolation these days?
1: Yeah, it's been weird, that's for sure. I live in New York City, so I'm right in the middle of it. And I grew up here, so to see so few people out on the street and see you know, the vehicular traffic cut down. I will say, you know, if you can hear it off in the background, you know, for for most of my life living in New York, the sirens in the background were just kind of ambient noise. And now I live near a Hill hospital. You notice them a little bit more specifically, and you think about what is actually happening as it relates to the sirens. So I've just been kind of you know, hanging out, reading, watching some TV, doing a bunch of interviews, and you know, hoping that uh, that this will pass and everybody is healthy and safe.
0: So, Boog, we've even heard today. I'm sure you've seen the reports out there. Jeff Passen from ESPN included that baseball is is trying to figure out how to get back on the field. And there's so many moving parts to this, of course. But this plan about Arizona and isolating players and kind of living in the hotel and the testing and and what they're proposing at this point. What do you think about this? Is this something that could be uh, a plan that could get baseballies back going temporarily until they figure the rest out?
1: Well, I yeah, it's a loaded question, and obviously, you know, above my pay grade. <laughs> I, I think that the issue becomes uh, – look, until mass testing is available – The point is kind of moot. And then the question becomes, you know, do they actually have the stones to make mass testing available for a league before New York or Detroit or New Orleans? And, you know, hopefully the answer is no. And the other thing that I would say relative to that is there's just so many you know, logistics involved in quarantining, et cetera. Now, I understand there's a lot of money at stake. I understand even from, you know, a government standpoint, they probably would like it to happen, you know, because it'd be good for morale just to see, you know, sports out there. It's probably the one sport of the four because it has the least amount of contact that would, you know, you'd be, you you, possibly might be able to pull off. I don't know how they do it. It, it seems like a lot. Um, but I guess, you know, we'll just, we'll wait and see. I, I, I'd have to think it, it'd take just a, an inordinate amount of, of planning. That's for darn sure.
0: Not to mention it's 110 degrees in Arizona when they'd be playing no that, that little detail.
1: There's no question. So, you know, one of the things, for example, in the Jeff Passant article is that, the players would still socially distance and not celebrate. And they wouldn't sit in the dugout on top of each other. They'd sit in the stands spread out. Well, you know, sitting in the, out in the open in the Arizona heat in the middle of the summer is, you know, you know, is borderline dangerous, to be honest. I mean, at least for, you know, I'm, I'm fair skinned. I, so I look I, again, there, there, are greater, there are greater issues and concerns, but I, I do start to wonder if it's something that will be um, you know, really really pushed and, and advocated for, but there would be a lot, a lot to plan.
0: And not just the Arizona plan, Boog, but when you think about baseball, Jeff Passan actually made this point during the ESPN Daily podcast I was listening to today. Think of, of pitchers in baseball. How often they lick their fingers, how often they're rubbing their face to get sweat to put on the ball, how many people touch the baseball, like all these little details that people will now be so cognizant, cognizant of and thinking about. So whenever they get back to baseball, what are the procedures? And you know as well as anybody how mental the game is. And if you're messing with the, you know how a pitcher throws the ball and, and how a player plays the game, it just tells you that even if they got the all-clear to play tomorrow and had to get back, they like, how many mental adjustments are going to have to be made by players to get out there and play again, not to mention the distance from their families and just so many different things here. So the last thing you want to do is rush these guys out there and have them get sick. But the other thing is you don't want to rush them out there and have them completely change the way they play the game. You want to see the game played as best as can be.
1: I would also maintain... That for a week, it might be different and unique. And I, again, I like, I, I'm not saying this is a reason not to do it, but anybody that's been to a B game, you know, an instructional league or, you know, or spring training on a backfield, these guys are used to playing in front of fans. And after a while, I do wonder a month in what it will be like. For the players to just have no one there, I think it, it, it will be kind of odd. I would think that there would be some effect on the lack of fans in the stands.
0: Boog Jami, ESPN, is our guest here on ESPN Radio Syracuse. So, Boog, what a week this was supposed to be at the Masters beginning, the NBA and NHL playoffs around the corner, and all the great sporting events that kind of converge into one. But of course, baseball would be underway. Uh, what what do you miss most about not having baseball right now?
1: I mean, I yeah, it's a tough question. I look, I love calling games. I get to call games nationally on the radio and on TV. I just I'm you know, look, I miss the sport. And I know for so many people, it's a distraction. It's my job, but it's the way I connect with humans. You know, there are so many of these guys I've known for such a long time it's doing the thing that i love and the human interaction whether it's you know with anthony rizzo and chris bryant or with our camera guys or with my radio partner chris singleton or my radio producer justin ware i you know the the human connection you know look i i mean i'm in a stress right now where i mean i think you know in the last uh you know, the last five or six days, I actually haven't been outside and I've, I guess I've seen one other human within probably 10 feet of me. So, you know, stuff gets, it's isolating. So, you know, you just, you miss the the human connection. And I just, I love doing the gig. It's so interesting and and fun. Um, So it's, I I think it, 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 the answer to the question for me, though, is just more on a basic level, you know?
0: What were you most looking forward to this season? What were the storylines that just hopped off the page at you that you couldn't wait to see play out?
1: I'm not a, I'm not a, I, I'm weird. I'm not as big a storylines guy. I mean, I know that the Astros thing was going to be interesting and, and to see them, you know, be received the way they were going to be received. I also think you're going to have some really good teams. The Yankees and the Dodgers would be really good. Um, but I'm always, I, I guess I'm always interested just to see how's it going to play out. And I always enjoy watching greatness. So I'm always excited getting a chance to watch Garrett Cole pitch or Mike Trout play or Christian Yelich hit. You know that's the type of stuff that I'm always excited for, and it's probably less specific to what's going to happen necessarily this year. I'm more, um, I, I, I just go into it with kind of a blank slate, and I and I love the way you know it ends up getting you know kind of colored on its own.
0: Boog, you're there in New York, the Yankees. You mentioned the name, bringing Garrett Cole and it seemed like we would be back to first time in a long time that the full expectation from minute one would be that this team was going to go out there and win the World Series, and maybe they'll get back out there and play as we were discussing the plans and what they're trying to sort right. through here, but not playing right now, thinking about that Yankees team, what, what, were, what were your expectations of them, and, and, and is, is that a fair thing to say that they'd be the heavy favorite yeah. to Yeah.
1: That's. I don't think they'd be the heavy favorite to win the World Series. I think, that, I I think that, that the Yankees and the Dodgers would be pretty pretty even. Um, but I, you know, in the in the American League, they'd be favored. And I think that look, your 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 overall point stands, and that is, you go back to the late '90s and the late '70s and think about the Yankees as the the powerhouse and the Kings of baseball, those two air, you know, times in recent memory, obviously, um, you know, the twenties, the fifties as well. But I, I look at the Yankees and, you know, it, the, yeah, the pressure would have been firmly on them. And I know that they're excited about that. I know Aaron Boone. I know he's excited about a chance to win a world series as a manager. And, no matter what anybody wants to say, when the Yankees are good, it's exciting. They have the biggest fan base, and lots of people root against them, so it it it's compelling. They're 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 compelling in the same way that when you know the Lakers and the Celtics in the NBA and the Cowboys in the NFL that that type of thing.
0: Staying in New York for a minute, Boog. I was listening to Cavino uh, and Rich this past weekend on ESPN Radio, and they had Buster Olney on. And the question was, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. To, to paraphrase, it was basically like, what team, you know, is really missing out here on, on the opportunity to be on the field? And Buster said the Mets, he felt like that was a team that could have surprised some people. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Syndergaard going down is uh, is certainly a, a, a blow for them. And, um, you know, again, the when you're talking about the opportunity, I, I would, I mean, i, I think that the team you have to go to is the Dodgers don't you I mean if you're looking at the possibility that the Dodgers could you know not play this year and effectively lose the one year of Mookie Betts that they'd have I do think that they're going to be in the mix to resign him but the possibility that Mookie Betts could come and go and never play for them that's the first thought that goes through my head.
0: By the way, uh, speaking of Mookie Betts and that trade and the Red Sox, uh, that that story kind of died off. We haven't heard anything about that. I understand baseball's been pretty busy dealing with other issues here, but that would have been another intriguing storyline coming in. It, you know, whatever level the Red Sox would have reached, maybe not to what we heard about the Astros, but there was there was certainly something there that we're all kind of waiting on.
1: As far as what happens with the Red Sox and their punishment you're talking yes. about. Yeah, yeah, I I Yeah, and... Again, I think if there's one thing that, if there's one thing that, you know, this, you know, the pandemic has done is that, I don't think that the weight of that is going to resonate the way it would have before this. No way. Um, so, you know, we're just not going to be as focused. We're all going to be thankful to have sports, to have baseball back when we have it back.
0: Boog, I really appreciate your time. Hang in there. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I can't wait to hear you back on the radio calling games again soon.
1: Brent, thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it.
0: Former voice of the Orange, Mark Johnson with us here. Mark, how you doing, bud?
1: Brent, good to be on with you. Man, 17
2: years. You and I were both a lot thinner and a lot younger back when the Orange won that title.
0: (laughs) No question about it, my friend. I'm glad to hear the voice hasn't lost its edge, though. I was a little... No,
2: no, no. No, no, not at no. all. Even in the high elevations, no, no. It's just still there.
0: <laughs> Did you have to make that adjustment when you got out there for a while? No. Or?
2: No, the thinner air <laughs> didn't do anything for me. and uh, it, It's hard to believe it's been 17 years. I've been gone from Syracuse, of course, what, 16 years. But uh, it was awful fun the other day, jumping on just for a very few minutes there, uh, with the guys and sitting and watch that here. Coach Beheim and Mello and, and Akeem Warwick and... Uh, Jerry McNamara and those guys just kind of reliving it, listening to their stories and how they talked about And it brought back a lot of memories for me, obviously, for that would have been my first year uh, doing the Orange and just, uh, you know, beat along for that ride. It was so spectacular and I'll never forget it.
0: Was there anything that was told during that? I don't know how long you watched it, Mark, but did, did you learn anything that maybe you didn't know about that team and, and hanging out during that thing?
2: Well, there was nothing that they would terribly, uh, you know, groundbreaking in terms of, you know, because I was around those guys so much uh, during that stretch. And so for me, it was just fun sitting back and listening. And, you know, I I thought to myself when when Matt Park first dropped me a line and said, hey, do you want to take part in this? I thought, well, certainly I do. And then I thought to myself, you know, I've never – really gone back and watched that game. And just assuming the guys on the roster probably had done that, but to hear for the most part, those guys, he really hadn't gone back. You know, they'd seen some highlights here or there and there, and maybe a few clips and, and segments, but really they hadn't gone back and really watched it from start to finish. So that was a little bit enlightening to me that, you know, maybe I wasn't so unusual. And, and so that was what made it really fun to sit and kind of get that renewed view of what went down in that game against Kansas.
0: Mark, I'm not going to say that I knew that night at Madison Square Garden when they opened the season against Memphis that they were going to win the Uh, national championship, but boy, you knew in that game that they had a player in Carmelo Anthony that was just different. Take me back to just that first game, that first moment, and what you were thinking about this team as they started that season.
2: Well, you know, so I walk on campus about the same time that Mellow did, and uh, right at the beginning of August, you know, I got there, and, and all I knew was, you know, it was an orange team that was coming off an NIT appearance the year before. Things didn't go as they hoped it had, and they get the number one recruit in America, and you know, there's always great optimism regarding that guy, but you never know if it's going to pan out. And then they get some hot shots and kid is supposed to be a great shooter and a great kind of feisty ball player out of out of uh, Pennsylvania. What's he going to be like? And so you get around to that first ball game, and Although it being a loss at Madison Square Garden, the next day I think Matt and I drove up to Boston. I think for the football game, if I remember correctly, I think we had that was a Friday night. I think that game took place. But just as you said, you you kind of walked away from that first ball game, going, "Boy, there's some talent on this team." now, now, now was it going to gel? You know, I wasn't sure, and at the beginning of the year, you're, you're not ranked. Where it really hit me, and I think I said this uh, on that, that Facebook Live thing the other day, where it really hit me was late in February when the Orange had a game in East Lansing against Michigan State, won that ball game, and then I, I still haven't gone back to look at it, but I think there was a home game against West Virginia in between, and then we went to Georgetown and won that ball game in D.C., and, and that was the moment for me, Brent, where I really thought, Boy, this team's really good. I mean, I knew Mello was good all season long, and boy, Jerry was fantastic, and they had depth and they had length defensively. But it was that stretch where I thought, boy, maybe they've got a chance really to do something special. Now, I never thought they were going to win the national championship. I thought they'd compete for it, you know, because you've got to get, uh, you got to be good, you got to be lucky, and all those other things that go along with it. But that, for me, late February was the stretch where I said, okay, this team's capable of doing that.
0: So they get to the tournament, and I. Look, it, it's never easy, no matter how much talent you have. Right. But I've still got that Big 12 championship T-shirt somewhere in a drawer. You know, <laughs> all, all, those, all those Big 12 teams they beat were, was interesting. But the, the stumble along the way that maybe gets lost in the shuffle a bit, Mark, was they're down 17 points to Oklahoma State. The dream could have died right there.
2: Yeah, without question, you know, and and that first game against uh, against uh, Manhattan was not a great game. I didn't play exceptionally well in that contest, and so you know, I I guess when you think about any team that goes on to win a championship there are going to be those moments that in hindsight you look back and boy, and you think boy, by the skin of your teeth, if that foul shot didn't go in or if that turnover by the opposition didn't happen, we wouldn't be here and have a chance to win the championship. But You know, I've said many times and it was amazing, Brett, when I got here to Colorado, I'll never forget it, I'd been in town just a, a week or two and I went out to a Denver Broncos practice during training camp as I'm walking along, there's fans all over the place, people were screaming at me, you know, from the stands, go orange. I couldn't believe how, how many Syracuse <laughs> Fans were here in Denver at that point in time, but I've said to many people because I get asked about it. Well, there's a guy that sits right behind me at the event center where I do games now for the Buffaloes. Who's a Syracuse guy, and so he's always going to come up and talk every ball game. But we always talk about, you know, that uh, Jim Trussell told me years ago that to win a championship, you have got to be good and you got to be real lucky. He said some of his best teams never did win championships. That, that Syracuse basketball team was exceptionally good, and then as the tournament rolled on, they got better and better and better, I think, through the three weekends of that tournament. That, that's what made it so fun to, to kind of ride along with those guys.
0: So, before they get to New Orleans, uh, before they play the championship game in New Orleans, I should say, they play Texas. Yeah. and
1: yeah. and Mello was phenomenal. And
0: Mello had 33 points in that game, yep. Akeem Warwick had the dunk, we all remember, and Melo was playing through a bad back, another one of those details that kind of gets lost in the shuffle, and it was in that Texas game that he got hurt. What what do you remember going into that night, the Monday night championship game? Was there doubt about how he could play? I mean, everybody knew he was going to try and gut through it, but was there some concern?
2: About that. Well, there was concern. I mean, I, I knew he was nursing. You know, their least he was tender, let's put it that way. And so I remember thinking, man, I hope he can go. And then, of course, Wayne Simeon wasn't playing for Kansas. You thought, well, you know, okay, they're, they're down a guy. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Melo doesn't have to be at his best, and he turns out to be phenomenal, of course, uh, in that ball game. But you know what gets lost in that championship game? And it really reminded me of it the other night when we watched that contest was how good Josh Pace was in the second half of that ballgame. I had totally forgotten how Enormous he played. Early you had Craig Forth getting a bucket or two. Quentin Dwayne got a bucket or two. So they had produced something early on. And then in the second half, I was I was blown away as the memories were kind of coming back. How many rebounds or big plays Josh Pace made the second half of that ballgame? So there were so many things about it that just fell so perfectly together for Syracuse that season.
0: Mark Johnson, the former voice of the Orange now in Colorado, joining us here on ESPN Radio Syracuse. Yeah, it was re I had never rewatched the game fully. I would certainly seen highlights of it in certain yeah. parts of it Mark but Pace being bid Billy Edelin coming through Queth Dwayne everybody remembers Jerry's big threes Queth Dwayne had a couple big threes no doubt that about that.
2: You was, know what I've always yeah. said about Quef too, and, and that team, and rightfully so, Carmelo is the headliner, obviously. Jerry McNamara with this, you know, the way he played all season long as a freshman, but six three-pointers in the first half was just out of his mind in that first half, hitting threes from, a like 30, 35 feet. I've said all the time, though, about that team, I don't know if the way he gets enough credit. Now, he had great length, of course, out front of that 2-3 zone, but as a senior player on that team, the leadership, the way that guys, it was Mello's team, but everybody listened when Quest spoke. I thought from a leadership standpoint, from a, a a kind of bringing guys together standpoint, I've always thought Quef Duane, he was so unbelievably important for that team from a leadership standpoint in the locker room, for them to eventually get to the national championship. Yeah, they
0: called him Grandpa on that team, and it was That's interesting. Right. Jim, uh, I, I remember uh, hearing it at the time, and I was reading some things this week, Mark, that And asking Jim about that team that week, one thing that he emphasized was he never really kind of told them how young they were, if that makes any sense. He never emphasized that. He just let them do their thing. And when you literally look back on it, it's like, man, that was a young team that on the biggest stage they could possibly play on played their best. That's incredible.
2: Well, you think of that team that they were playing against in Kansas, so... Syracuse comes in, and yeah, they've got some, some upperclassmen leadership with a guy like Quit Dwaney, but all that youth in the team, and they're playing against a senior heavy team in Kansas. And, you know, we've kind of forgotten, you know, with today's one and done nature, what we've seen Kentucky do, or, or a North Carolina, or a Duke do in recent years, where some really young guys come in there and have great success. That was still on the forefront of this thing. You didn't see that many freshmen come in and have the kind of impact that Jerry and certainly Mello did. And, and I really enjoyed that story that somebody asked uh, Jim and, and uh, Coach Weaver about Mello. Did they know what they had early? Because you know, he's coming in with all the hype and you know, he's supposed to be good, but I think Coach Beheim said something along the lines that one of them made the comment, you know, he might not just be the best freshman in the big east he might be the best player in america for goodness sakes and so they obviously with their keen coaching i saw something very early on it took maybe the rest of us a little while to figure out just how good he was but they saw it very early
0: so the, the game starts and syracuse we mentioned jerry's threes and the role they got off to and I, it's one of those things we kind of remember but And so many people re-watching it Saturday, Mark. I mean, they had a 47-29 lead in that game. That's a huge lead against a team like that. But then Kansas gets right back into it, the 25-10 run, and this thing became a game. What do you remember about just the flow of that game and what you were thinking when Syracuse was up big and then what you were thinking when Kansas got right back into it?
2: Well, the way they came out, and we all know this in basketball, when shots are falling, everything looks good, right? And, and I do think in that first half, Sarah, I made the comment on the, on the Facebook event the other day. Syracuse's defense, the first half, was unbelievable. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, they really made Kansas uncomfortable. I remember thinking when we got to the halftime, the Buffs rather or uh, the orange. Well, there's a little slip, being that I'm here in Colorado. The orange were, were up, I think it was 11 at the half. And I remember thinking, I I don't think there's any way they can shoot that way. Certainly Jerry can't shoot that way in the second half, so they're going to have to be good defensively. And that that senior-laden team for Kansas was going to make a comeback. And I remember thinking, man, I, can they hold them off? And you start getting nervous down the stretch because of that 25-10 to run you're talking about. And the way they played, Kansas did, coming back, hitting big shots, putting the pressure on Syracuse, and then having that young group then step up and make some big shots. You know, I always think about that dunk by Craig Forth down the stretch. You know that was huge. There, you mentioned the 83. I mean, there were some enormous plays down the stretch of that one, and of course, you get into the, the block at the end of the ball game. But uh, the way that young team continued, they never seemed to doubt themselves. Even though that kind of pressure was on them in a championship game, and a very veteran team was making a run at them, they didn't seem to get shaken by
0: it. Overall, free throws were interesting because Kansas couldn't hit any. They were 12 of yep. 30 at the line. But, man, for Hakeem Warwick in New Orleans, of all places, to step to the line (laughs) and miss those free throws, and then, like you said, 10 seconds later, totally redeem himself. I mean, you want to talk about exercising some ghosts right there, and you put that in your final call of the game, Mark, that Jim Beheim got those four seconds back.
2: Yeah, yeah, he got he got the time back. I had the chuckle there's an assistant coach who's a former player for the Buffaloes now, named Nate Tomlinson and knows the real well. And the other day somebody tweeted out, it might have been the Syracuse basketball that, that tweeted out the block. It was the play, but it started with the free throws and Nate Tomlinson, just to kind of uh, rib his friend a little bit, he retweeted it and said the block? How about the missed free throws? You know, like, <laughs> I got a big kick out of that. But, yeah, you, you would think under those circumstances that Hack was going to make one of them, right? Just just to kind of make things a little bit easier. But then he came back and redeemed himself. But what, what I think is one of the great, iconic plays in the history of NCAA championship games. I mean, nobody is ever going to forget the block. And, and I love the comment. I'd forgotten about it. The comment by Billy Packer when he said, it's not how tall you are, it's how long you are. And, and what a great semester. The summarization of, of that uh, phenomenal play by Kim Warwick.
0: Every single time I see the replay, I just say, "How? How did he yeah. get there? What was I your don't. What was your vantage point of that play?
2: Well, we were sitting down, if I remember correctly. We were that would have been we were behind Jim Nance over to his right, so from center court. So that would have been off to my left, and so it, was, it wasn't a great angle for us. But all I remember is when Lee went up for the shot. I'm thinking, well, he, he's taken the shot. Hope he doesn't make it, and and not even contemplating the idea that Warwick's going to get there to block it. I'm just hoping he gets in his view a little bit. And then the fact that he actually got a piece of that one was mind-boggling to me at the time. And, and of course, like I said, one of the great plays in championship game history.
0: Mark, what, was the, uh, what are some radio-friendly stories, I guess I'll put it, of the celebration afterwards? What did you guys do in New Orleans that night?
2: Well, uh, you know, it wasn't after that game. I, I think we were so shocked and stunned uh, by the way things went. It wasn't terribly wild, you know. We had some fun when we first got there. I remember on, on Bourbon Street when we first got there. I think it was on Tuesday we went, we got the town. Uh, afterward, it was just a lot of I can't believe what just happened. Did it just happen? You know, your phone's blowing up. I'll never forget. By the time I finally, after we got done with post game, and I talked with Coach Mayheim afterward uh, for the post game, I remember picking my phone up, and the first message I had was was from Dave Pash. You know, because I just replaced him. He had been there the year before. Right. And all it said was, you son of a gun. <laughs> and and I, had to, I had to chuckle at that. And You know, that, that's just the fun part about it. And, and You know, when you're, when you're the voice of a team, you're not responsible for anything, but you're along for the ride. And it's just an honor to be along for the ride and, and be able to enjoy kind of all the stories of Carmelo and McNamara and all those guys and the things they were telling the other day. And just being a part of that, I think, is always such an honor for, for guys in our position.
0: How's life in Colorado these days, Mark?
2: Oh, fantastic! You know, we uh, finally—I I live up at nine thousand feet. I got a little ranch up in the mountains, and so this time of year, uh, right now, we're all hunkered down like everybody else is. And for me, I just got a chance to get out, and there's enough snow off and ice off the roads where I could take one of my horses out. So right now, it's just uh, me, and the horses, my wife, and son, and just kind of relaxing here in the sunshine of Colorado.
0: It was great to hear your voice. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll definitely catch up again down the road, but uh, especially great to get you on the radio on a day like today. Thank you so much, my friend.
2: You're very welcome. It's uh, it's a phenomenal memory. Like I said, it was honored to be a part of it. And, and uh, what a great day to sell. we got nothing else to celebrate in sports right now. So uh, for the Orange fans out there, just uh, enjoy a little bit of conversation about a great championship. That,
0: that is absolutely correct. What a shame. We ran out of time for Pauly Sibilia stories. We'll have to do that uh, next oh, that's
2: time. That's too bad.
0: <laughs> we got cut, just like uh, Matt Damon always gets cut on, on that Jimmy Kimmel show. Right?
2: Well, i got a few of those stories we can talk about next time.
0: No, I don't I don't need to hear him, Mark. That's okay.
2: <laughs> Thank you, sir. Be good. You, Brent. Fine.
0: Mark Johnson, ladies and gentlemen, former voice of the Orange. To play it in the Orange, playing man-to-man defense. Graves looking, played into Heinrich. Spins up the left side, fading away, firing three-pointer. It's over. It's over. The Orange have won
1: it. Syracuse has won the national championship, and Jim Beheim has found the final four seconds here in New Orleans. They're screaming. They're dancing in Syracuse, and the Orange are the champions of college basketball.